Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will uphold thee. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Whenever a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ sins, he doesn't lose his salvation, but he does break his fellowship and ongoing walk with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we have a simple grace-oriented recovery procedure, which is to simply confess, which means to identify or to acknowledge our sins to God the Father. The instant we do that, he forgives us and forgives forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We're restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our walk by means of the Spirit. Before we begin our study, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity which we have today to gather together and fellowship around the teaching of your word. Father, we are reminded that it is your word that is uh, your thinking, your mindset. It expresses your unified viewpoint on all issues of life. And it is by means of your word that through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and his sanctifying ministry in our life that we grow and mature as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray as we study this morning that you would uh, challenge us with the things that we study, that we might come to a greater appreciation and understanding of who you are and what you have done for us, and that we might gain a greater understanding of the process of witnessing and the content of witnessing. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that we would uh, have good concentration this morning under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Nine, thir- nine o'clock on Sunday mornings always a bit early for everybody, so I thought I would come up with something to maybe amuse you this morning. We all know there's problems with the American education system. Maybe it's not the school system. Maybe, well, you take it. From these notes. These are notes that are written by the parents to a Mississippi school district. First one Please excuse Lisa for being absent. She was sick and I had her shot. 
maybe that's not a mistake. No. Uh, second one, my son is under a doctor's care and should not take P.E. today. Please execute him. Third note, dear school, please excuse E-K-S-C-U-S-E. Please excuse John from being absent on January 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, 32nd, and also on the 33rd. Please excuse Roland from P.E. for a few days. Yesterday he fell out of a tree and misplaced his hip. A lot of these have to do with being excused from P.E. One of that has anything to do with the overweight factor in America. Uh, John has been absent because he had two teeth taken out of his face. Please excuse Chris. He will not be in school because, not because, but because he had an acre in his side. Uh, one of my favorites. Please excuse Jimmy for being. It was his father's fault. And then last but not least, please excuse Jennifer for missing school yesterday. We forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch, and when we found it Monday, we thought it was Sunday. (laughs) All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the most extended discussion on the doctrinal significance of the resurrection in the New Testament. Yesterday, yesterday I was thinking about this and realized that since it's almost April, for the first time in many years, I may actually have a resurrection-oriented message on Resurrection Sunday this year. I don't always pay attention to those days, but every now and then the Holy Spirit sort of works things out and, and things come together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we are still studying the first verse. And the question we began to answer last time was, what is the gospel? There is some confusion in this passage over the content of the gospel because of what Paul says in the third and fourth verse. There he says, I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose uh, from the uh, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And there are many who will use that those two verses as a definition of the content of the gospel. In fact, I remember a seminary professor of mine who did that. Yet, the question must be asked, is it necessary to believe in the resurrection in order to be saved? Is it necessary to believe in the deity of Christ in order to be saved? Is it necessary to believe in miracles or the virgin birth in order to be saved? What do you have to believe to be saved? What's essential to the gospel? What's non-essential to the gospel? What is, as some say, what's that irreducible minimum that one must believe in order to be saved? Do you have to have a belief in dispensations or prophecy or premillennialism in order to be saved? We know all these things are true, but what must we believe in order to be saved? So in the first verse, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I proclaim to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you were saved, 
if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now that last part of the second verse sounds like you could believe and not be saved. It sounds like you could believe but in vain. That's not what the Greek says, and we'll have to deal with that when we get there. But right now we're just focusing on the first verse. Paul is making known to them. That means I made known to them. It's a historic present I pointed out last time, which emphasizes a an event which occurred previously as though it were taking place in the present to dramatize. The present tense dramatizes the event itself. So I made known to you the gospel. That is the object of what he made known, the gospel which I preach to you. Uh, that is the second word there, the gospel. And the word I preach to you, the verb there is uangelizo, which means to bring good news or announce good news, to proclaim the divine message of salvation or proclaim the gospel. The object of his what he has preached and what he made known is the Greek word uangelion. See, that's a cognate. The noun is uangelion. The verb is uangelizo. And, of course, you can see where that is the cognate of our English word evangelism or evangelist. And it means to bring or announce good news. It's a compound of two words in the Greek. The root word is uh, angelos. The noun is messenger. Same as the word for angel. Its root word, root meaning is to be a messenger. And the prefix, that EU in Greek, is a prefix that indicates something good, something pleasant, something beneficial. You know, you know that word when you come over into English. We have several English words that come in, that come from Greek that have that EU prefix like euphoric. You know, that's a feeling, that's a time when you have good feelings, good emotions, or eulogize at a funeral message. And it means to eulogize from the Greek word uh, logos, meaning a message. It's a good word. And a eulogy is when you say something good about the person who is deceased. So we have the Greek noun, euangelion, and the verb, euangelizo, which indicate the... Uh, a good announcement. Basically, the word uangelizo has a number of meanings. The first is it describes someone who is announcing an oracle. This would be a religious dimension to it. Someone who announces what they have discovered through some, some prophet in the various religious systems uh, prevalent in Greece at the time. It also meant to speak as a messenger of gladness. Someone who was just giving a, 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 a positive message. Third, it meant to proclaim good news. Sometimes this had the idea of a positive message, such as one of military victory, when Philippides announced the victory of, of the Greeks at Marathon. It could also refer to a private message of joy, such as a birth announcement or a wedding announcement. This would uh, be described by Uangelizo. It was a message of good news. Sometimes it has the idea of being a promise. And then often it is reduced to its just basic sense of to announce or to bear a message. So what is the good news? Now, one of the reasons I'm doing this is to try to teach a methodology or go over a, a, a study technique, so to speak, so that when you come to a question in life, 
you have some idea of how you can go into the Scriptures and discover the answer. Also, because there's a lot of problems today, people want to jump from a question to an answer without necessarily going through and discovering what the Scripture says in the process. See, you don't discover what the gospel is by just some external uh, theological or doctrinal point. I mean, that's fine, but you get to doctrine and theology as a result of studying the text. You go through the Word and you correlate various passages. So this is what we are in the process of doing, looking at how this, this verb and noun are used in Acts. Acts is a record of the... Is there a problem with the sound? Is there a problem with the sound? You hear, hear, You guys hearing the speaker over here okay? Speaker over here okay? Okay. Uh, Acts is the record of the growth of the church during the early... Early years from about the, from the time of Christ's ascension, recording in Acts one, up through Paul's just before Paul's first imprisonment. And so, as we go through the book of Acts, we see the growth of the church as as God the Holy Spirit is moving the apostles and the early Christians out from the center point of Jerusalem. They didn't go willingly. So often we tend to idolize or idealize the first century church. And we think, oh, they were just so great and wonderful. Well, actually, they they were not. They didn't have as, as much enthusiasm about sharing the gospel and getting out there and witnessing as most Christians today. They were rather slow in moving, and God the Holy Spirit had to uh, kick them in the rear a few times and bring a little persecution their way to get them out of Jerusalem and taking the gospel around. But in the process, we get an understanding of what the gospel was, what the proper response to the gospel was, and what the procedures were in witnessing. And so last time I began by looking at its first main use, which is in Acts chapter 8. It's used one time previous to this in Acts 5.42, which is just a description of what the disciples or the apostles were doing in Jerusalem during this time, they were evangelizing and they were teaching. They were presenting the gospel and they were teaching the word. And that is how Christians grow. They do not grow through exhortational messages. They do not grow through nice little devotional homilies. They do not grow through motivational speeches. Believers grow by learning to think biblically. This is the principle of Romans 12:2, that we are to exchange the human viewpoint thought in our souls for divine viewpoint. We have to think about the world and life and problems and situations in life the way God looks at our life. And that means that we are to be transformed, Romans 12:2, by the renovation of our thinking. And that calls for a complete overhaul in the way we think. And it starts with the gospel, but you don't grow as a believer simply by hearing the gospel every Sunday morning, and you don't grow as a believer by simply being encouraged to live a good life. If you think about most messages that you hear, turn on the television, watch some of these various uh, tele-evangelists, watch various church services, and ask yourself the question, 
are they explaining the Scriptures? Are they teaching the Word of God? Or are they simply presenting good principles? I mean, I remember not long ago hearing about somebody, a friend of mine who was watching one of these guys on television and said, well, he says a lot of things that are doctrinally correct. I said, well, when does he open the Bible to do it? See, there's a lot of things that a person can stand up there and say that are right and true. But are they expositing or explaining the Scriptures? Are they going to the Bible? Are they just teaching a lot of what we might call good common sense, moral principles, a lot of application, a lot of how-tos? And that's one thing, of course, in the modern church growth movement is that because they use the sales techniques, is let's get out there and, and have a bunch of how-to sermons. In fact, I had a professor at seminary one time said that that's really the best thing to do is make sure you can create a lot of how-to titles for your sermons because that attracts people. But you can come, stand up and talk about how to have a happy marriage, how to solve the problems in your finances. You can talk about all kinds of how-tos that come across to the person in the pew as very practical, and they go away and they say, well, i got some great ideas on how to do this or how to solve this problem in my life, how to raise my kids. But see, you haven't taught them how to think. And any Buddhist, any Methodist, liberal Methodist, any Mormon can come along and do the same thing. The role of the pastor is not to teach morality. Anybody can teach morality. Morality is not the Christian way of life. Morality can be accomplished by any unbeliever. The Christian way of life is a supernatural supernatural way of life that demands a supernatural means of execution. That means we have to learn the dynamics, the mechanics of the spiritual life, how to walk by means of the Spirit, how to recover when we fail. We have to learn how to think biblically. We have to learn about God's plan and purposes for our lives. We need to know what to do about the sin in our life, how to deal with it. We need to learn principles of grace orientation. We need to learn about God's plan and purposes for history. We have to learn about the angelic conflict and our role in terms of spiritual warfare, that life is not uh, simply the physical reality that we see around us, but there is an immaterial reality related to the angels, related to demons, related to Satan's fall. We have to learn how to think biblically. And I'm amazed sometimes when I get out on, on some chat rooms on the, on the Internet and I just observe how Christians try to answer problems. And I'm not talking about Christians who are out there in, in uh, what I call la-la land of most churches, but I'm talking about people who are in doctrinal churches. And they raise a question, and their methodology of being able to answer a question is pathetic. It's, here are people who have been sitting in a pew under sound doctrinal teaching for 20 or 30 years, and they cannot think their way methodologically out of a wet paper bag. And that's why they get sucked into all kinds of screwy thinking. And so what I want you to understand this morning is uh, part of this is how to think correctly, how to have a correct methodology. You see, whenever you look at a word or an issue or question, you have to think in terms of how is the word used in Scripture? How is the word utilized in the Word of God? 
So we look at Uangalizo, and we'll go back and begin in Acts 8, just a little review from where we dropped off last time, and then we'll move on from there. Acts chapter 8, and we're looking at Philip. Philip was one of those who was chosen to serve in Acts 6, where he is described as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. These are the original uh, deacons, as it were, used, uh, utilized to administer uh, various things in the among the believers in in Jerusalem, so that the apostles would be freed from administration, be freed from these uh, technical details, and they could spend their time. That is, the apostles could spend their time teaching the word and and in prayer. That's the priority, and, and that's that's the model for the for the structure of the church. The pastor. And the pastoral staff, if it's a large church, is the, are the ones who are to teach the word, put their priority on the teaching of the word in prayer. And then there are deacons in the local church, and their responsibility is to take care of all of the other details so the pastor is not distracted by looking at things like, well, is the grass getting cut or the weeds being pulled? Is the building falling apart? Of course, it's a ongoing problem here. We don't want to ask that question because we know the answer. It's just the grace of God that holds this place together. But this is who Stephen was, one of the men full of the Spirit and um, full of wisdom, full of faith and full of wisdom in, in uh, Acts 6. And so we see how God begins to use him in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 8 in Samaria. Verse 4, I pointed out last time, therefore those who were scattered, this is after the first level of persecution in Jerusalem, which forced the, the Christians out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding region of Judea and Samaria. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. This is a topical sentence. They are preaching the word which has to do with uh, preaching the message. It's lagos there is the object of the verb, and the verb is uangalizo. And when we look at how this is uh, explained in verses 5 and following, the emphasis is on giving the gospel. It's not just teaching doctrine. Nobody out there is saved yet. So when it says preaching the word, there it is the verb is uangalizo, and it is specifically preaching or announcing the message, the good message of, of the gospel. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now, remember, Samaria is north of Jerusalem, but you go down because Jerusalem is at a higher elevation than Samaria. So whenever you're in Jerusalem, you're going down wherever you're going. If you go north, you go down. If you go south, you go down, because up and down in uh, the way they spoke has to do with elevation, not direction. So he went down to the city of Samaria to the north, and he preached Christ to them. He proclaimed Christ to them, and this is the verb keruso, uh, aorist uh, active indicative. He is announcing Christ to them, and the content of that announcement has to do with that Jesus was the Messiah and that salvation was faith alone in Christ alone. Now, how do we know that? Look at the detail that is given in the description in verses 9 to 13. This has to do with uh, a religious practitioner, a sorcerer, by the name of Simon. 
Now there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man's the great power of God. Now what was the basis for that? The basis for that was that he astonished them with his sorceries. He was involved in also healing and various miracles. See, the devil is able to counterfeit miracles. People are able, also able to counterfeit miracles through all sorts of fraudulent practices. Everybody has their, their little tricks of the trade to do this. And it, it uh, completely defrauds the masses because they are very gullible. Now, Simon is one of these, and when they believed Philip as he preached these things concerning the gospel, this is talking, verse 12 is talking about the people in Samaria. What was their response to the gospel? They believed Philip as he preached. They didn't believe and get baptized. They did that eventually. They didn't believe and commit themselves to the lordship of Christ, which is what the lordship gospel heretics say, simply when they believed Philip as he proclaimed these things. That is the response to the gospel. It is simply faith alone in Christ alone. John 3.18 says is that those who believe in him are not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The issue is faith alone. So in verse 12 we read, But when they believed Philip as he preached, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. The baptism was not part of the key response. The key response is belief. Baptism was subsequent. Verse 13, Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs uh, which were done. See, now he gets impressed with all the miracles. And then the later part of the story is he tries to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from Philip. And this is where you get the English word simony. Simony is the practice of someone trying to buy church offices and church authority. And it was abuse, a great abuse in the Roman Catholic Church during the Middle Ages. But the key issue I want to point out is that Uangalizo has to do with making an announcement about who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and the proper response to that is belief. Now, they also were baptized. Baptism was not a means of salvation. It wasn't a means of grace. But baptism was a nonverbal sign a nonverbal statement of what had taken place at salvation. It is a picture. Baptism in the church age was a picture of what happened to the believer at salvation, Romans 6, 3 through 5, that just as you are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that you are you're died with Christ, crucified with him on the cross, you are also resurrected to new life, and that's what's pictured in water baptism. You are A believer is plunged into water, which is a sign of being dead to sin, and he comes out of the water, which is a sign of new life in Christ. It is simply a nonverbal uh, symbol of what has taken place, of the reality that has taken place with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
Acts chapter 8 gives us partial view of what happens in evangelism. Let's look at the next, the next word that I want to use. And notice, one thing I want to point out again is the parallel between preaching the word in verse 4, the topical sentence, uangelizo, and then when Philip came, he preached Christ to them, and there's the verb keruso. Looks like this in the Greek. K-E-R-U-S-S-O. Long O. And that means simply to proclaim and describes the activity of the herald of the king, sort of the public uh, information officer who went out to make a proclamation. He was called a kerux. And so the verb form is keruso. This word keruso, which is a synonym of uangelizo, is used of Paul in Acts 9, verse 20. This is at, right after Paul's salvation, after he's, he had recovered his eyesight when Ananias had healed him, and he spent a few days with the disciples at Damascus, and we're told in verse 20, immediately he, that is Saul of Tarsus, now Paul, preached the Christ, preached Messiah in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. So there he is preaching Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. But the focus there is not simply on the gospel, but it is on his Messiahship, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now let's turn to the next use. The next use, which is in Acts 11, uh, 19, or the next, next place I want to look at is Acts 10. Acts 10. This is the episode where Peter takes the gospel to Cornelius. Now, what we've seen in the first example with the Ethiopian eunuch is this is our, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. In Acts 8, we deal with the Samaritans. These are prepared believers. They're, they, they are familiar with the Old Testament. They were ostracized by the Jews, but they were familiar with the Old Testament. So when uh, Philip goes to Samaria, they're not hearing anything new. So he comes to them, and he is preaching who Jesus is, preaching that he is the Messiah, and the response is faith. The second example in that chapter that I skipped over is down in, starts in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he goes down, and we're told that he meets an Ethio- a man of Ethiopia who is a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. So he is, uh, now the term eunuch does not necessarily mean he has been uh, emasculated. This is also a term that is used of, of a certain class of bureaucrats by this time. And he served in a position high position in the bureaucracy of Ethiopia, and we're said that he has a position of authority just under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. He has charge of all her treasury, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So he, in effect, is her secretary of treasury, which puts him in a position of tremendous influence, and a man who, when he gets there after he's saved, is going to be able to give the gospel to a large number of people in Ethiopia. Now, he is also a prepared unbeliever. 
He is not an unprepared unbeliever. He is sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah the prophet, according to verse 28. And the Holy Spirit directs Philip in verse 29, go near and overtake his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you were reading? And the man said, how can I unless someone guides me and ask Philip to come and sit with him? So he has some knowledge of Old Testament prophecy. That means he knows who the Christ is, who the Messiah is, who Jesus is. See, the problem that we're going to see is that for most of us, when we're communicating the gospel today, we have to understand if the person we're talking to has any concept of who God is and who Jesus is. Otherwise, if you just jump right into you have to trust in Jesus to be saved, they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know what they're being saved from. They don't even have the right idea of God. And so you're starting off at third base, and you haven't even gotten up to home plate to, to bat yet, so to speak. You have to recognize in, in each individual witnessing situation the circumstances are different. You can't have a canned approach. Now, you can have a certain uh, basic strategy in witnessing certain verses that you use, certain approaches that you use, but everybody that we talk to is different. Some people are coming out of out of backgrounds where they never heard the name of Jesus. They don't know who Jesus is other than as some sort of a, a word of profanity. Other people come may come from another culture, may be immigrants to the U.S., and they have no clue. Just think of the large numbers of, of Asians, Indians, uh, Chinese, Buddhists, Hindus that are here in the U.S., and they may have no clue who Jesus is, and we may get an opportunity to, to witness to them. I mean, even here in Preston City, which is pretty much, it's not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, there's too many Catholics around here, but it's pretty white Anglo-Saxon, but right up here at the Sitgo Station, you've got a couple of uh, Indians that now run that Sitgo Station, and just as you go into Norwich, there's now a huge Asian uh, market on the left, and it's beginning to look like New York or Houston around here with with so many different cultures present. So you, you have to have some some uh, understanding of where people are coming from. You can't just start off saying, well, do you believe in God? Because if it's a Buddhist, what they're going to feed into that concept of God is totally different from if you were talking to an Orthodox Jew. And that's the type of situation we have here. This is not just some typically pagan uh, Ethiopian here, but one who has a Gentile who is prepared. He has some understanding of the Old Testament and who God is. And he's reading in Isaiah 53, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? Now, this is a passage taken from Isaiah 53, 7 through 8. And Isaiah 53 is a passage you should be very familiar with. If you're not, you should go home and read it. It is one of the most precise prophecies in the Old Testament related to the suffering of the Messiah. Now, just a little note of sadness here. There is now a professor. This I'd just like to let you know how bad things are in the world. There is now a professor in the Old Testament Department of Dallas Seminary who has published a couple of papers on the fact that Isaiah 53 isn't messianic at all. I mean, the New Testament right here says it's messianic. But 
in his brilliant scholarship, he's now concluded that it's not a messianic passage at all. And they won't fire him. That's because Dallas Seminary is fast sliding into the pit of apostasy. And, in fact, it's, it's funny, over the years, I remember in the late 80s, there was a faculty member at Dallas Seminary who denied Mosaic authorship. They didn't fire him. One day he said, damn, in the classroom, and they fired him. See, the problem is they, they're reducing Christianity to morality and losing the text. This is why we have to really be praying for Chafer Seminary. There's no good place today to send our young men to get trained to teach the Word. Who's going to teach doctrine to our grandchildren? If we don't have the vision to get a seminary established today, and Chafer Seminary is the great hope that we have for the future. So in Acts 8, Stephen uses, or excuse me, Philip is using Isaiah 53 as a messianic passage to show that Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah 53. And then at the at the conclusion of this, the Ethiopian eunuch believes the gospel. And then in verse 40, Peter goes on and he goes back, I mean, excuse me, Philip goes back to Azotus, which is up in Judea. And passing through, he preached, that is, Uangalizo, in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So he is going through the area explaining the gospel and giving the gospel. This was how the church grew in the early church, was through people who uh, explained the gospel and who witnessed. Now, now in Acts 9.20, we go to Paul. Paul preaches Christ throughout the synagogues. Once again, those were prepared uh, unbelievers. They were Jewish believers, but they're prepared because they have an Old Testament context. And then we'll look at another example of prepared Gentile believers in Acts chapter 10. This is when Peter explains the gospel to Cornelius. And Cornelius, again, is a prepared Gentile believer. He has he is a proselyte to Judaism. That term is used of a Gentile who was a practicing Jew and learning, going through all of the uh, Jewish ritual, learning the ritual to convert to Judaism. So he has an Old Testament background. He understands who God is, is the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He understands the Old Testament teaching on sin and the promise of a, of a Messiah and a Savior, and he is looking for that Savior. He has a positive volition. And we read, and let's just skip through most of the, I'm not going to go through the whole account, but Peter is brought to Cornelius by God the Holy Spirit and begins to witness to him. Verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, there he uses the verb, uangelizo, uh, and there it's a present middle participle, and is in, is used to uh, describe the word which God sent. How did he do it? So it's a participle of manner. 
He did it by preaching peace through Jesus Christ. That word you know, or that message you know, logos again should be translated message, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea. And that word for proclaimed there in verse 37 is the word keruso. Uh, it was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And then skip down to uh, to verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. So verse 43 gives us the content of the gospel. It is to believe in him and you will receive forgiveness, actually forgiveness of sins. So evangelism is announcing the good news that through Jesus Christ you have forgiveness of sins. Now let's turn the page. Well, let's look at the response before we go on. Verse 45, those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. And once again, the emphasis is on belief. It's not on anything else. The emphasis is on believe, believe, believe. That's the focus of the gospel. It isn't to add anything to that. Now, let's turn over uh, one page to Acts 11, uh, 19. I have another indication of evangelism, but here it's not the word euangelizo, uh, but is another synonym in Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, uh, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. That's the new King James Version, but actually the word translated preaching in verse 19 is the Greek verb laleo, laleo, which simply means to speak. L-A-L-E-O. Laleo. Communicating, we might, we might translate it communicating. Communicating the message to no one but the Jews only. What's the response? Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So what is the response to the gospel message? It is believing. What it means to turn to the Lord isn't the idea of repentance in the sense of uh, shame or in the sense of, of uh, trying to impress God with your sorrow and remorse. It's the idea of at one point you have not accepted Christ as Savior, and so you turn to him and you trust in him as your Savior. Now that had to do primarily with uh, prepared Jews at this time, because the text says that they were going to speak uh, only to only to Jews. Now we get another example of prepared Jewish believers in Acts chapter thirteen. Acts chapter thirteen, in verse thirty-two, we have the verb uangelizo, and we declare to you glad tidings. That's the verb uangelizo. We declare to you glad tidings, the promise which was made to the Father. 
Now, in order to understand what the content of the good tidings was, we have to go back to, to verse 16, where Paul begins to give the gospel to those in Antioch in Pisidia. This is a region up in central, central Turkey. Men of Israel and you who fear God. So he's addressing Jews. These are prepared, positive Jews. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. That's out of slavery. Now, for And then he begins to rehearse the history of Israel. He is then comes down to, to John the Baptist and his preaching in verse 24. And then when we get to uh, verse 28, he begins to describe what, they're, what happened to Jesus. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, he's notice his emphasis on the fact that Jesus' death fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. When they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. So here he introduces resurrection as part of his gospel presentation. Now, the question is, is it part of the gospel or just part of his gospel presentation? But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his eyewitnesses, or who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And, of course, that is referring to the fact that 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 psalm is applied to many events in Jesus' life. Each of these events are an opportunity where Jesus, I mean, where God the Father declares the sonship of Jesus as his eternal son. Verse 34, And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. That's a quote from Isaiah 55, verse 3. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, Psalm 16.10. And that was a statement that his body would not lie in the grave and deteriorate, Psalm 16.10, but that it would be raised from the dead. And then skip down to verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached. And here is another form of the verb. We've been looking at euangelizo. This is the prefix. And here we have a variant on the word kataangelizo. K-A-T-A-N-G-I-L-I-Z-O. Katangelizo. And it is a synonym also meaning to proclaim or to announce that through this man is proclaimed to you what? The forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So here we get a little more clarification that in the proclamation of the gospel, the point is forgiveness of sins, and this deals with the subject of justification. 
Justification doesn't mean just as if I had never sinned. Justification recognizes that the issue in salvation has to do with the justice of God. God is absolute justice and perfect righteousness. These two different concepts in English, justice and righteousness, both derive from the basic Greek word and Hebrew word. The Greek word has to do with, with righteousness, dikaiosune. From the root dk, d-i-k-e, dikaiosune, that's spelled d-i K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. Dikaiosune has to do with righteousness. Its application is justice. So righteousness has to do with the standard, and justice has to do with the application of the standard. The same is true for the Hebrew word tzadak, which is uh, tzadak is spelled uh, T-Z-A-D-D. A-K, Sadak. Now, in English, we use two different words to describe this one concept, but they were, in, in both Hebrew thought and in Greek thought, they were seen as inseparable. When you have a value system, you apply that value system. In, in, in America, so often we have people who think you can have a value system and not apply it, and that just leads to hypocrisy. But the righteousness of God... You have the plus R of God. His perfect righteousness is his standard. And no human being meets the standard of God because we are all sinners. We are minus R. But, see, we still have a problem that somehow, in order to have a relationship with God, his justice, which is the application of the standard, has to be satisfied. So, at salvation, all of our sins were poured out on the cross. So that on the cross, Jesus Christ paid for all of our sins, and we're told that he who knew no sin was made sin for us. So even though he is perfect righteousness, all of our sins are imputed to him judicially. He doesn't become a sinner, but he bears in his body on the cross our sin. Therefore, at salvation, his perfect righteousness is imputed or credited or reckoned to our account so that we receive his perfect righteousness. It's not that our minus R is turned into plus R. It is that our minus R is covered with his plus R, so that the perfect righteousness of God now looks down on us and sees perfect divine righteousness as our possession. Because the standard is met, the justice of God is now free to approve us or to bless us. This is what is called the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ at that instant, his perfect righteousness is credited to our account. God's righteousness sees our possession of divine righteousness. All this happens simultaneously grants it approval, the justice of God then blesses us, and we are justified by faith alone. That's what that means. And all of our sins are paid for by, have been paid for by Christ on the cross. That is why we can announce to people that their sins are forgiven. 
Their sins are not an issue anymore. People are running around thinking they have to do good, they have to impress God, they have to clean up their life, they have to somehow improve what they've done. They're, they're loaded with guilt, perhaps, over some past sin, some past failure. Uh, there are many people who are walking around, and, and many of us are walking around. We've got stuff that's hidden away, and we don't want anybody to know about it. We would be embarrassed if anybody found out about it, and some folks are walking around with a load of guilt because of something they've done in the past or something that was done to them in the past. But the fact is that God in his omniscience knew every single sin that would ever uh, that we would ever commit in our lives, every single sin that would ever be committed in human history, and it was all paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. So there is real, genuine forgiveness so that we can forget about those failures so that they don't shackle us and hold us back and we can actually go forward with a clean conscience and advance in the spiritual life. We don't have to impress God because God knows all the worst and and he paid for everything on the cross. This is the message of the gospel. This is the good news. It's not good news to say, well, you can be saved, but you have to do a few things. You have to trust in Christ, but but you also have to be baptized, and you have to make sure you're in church all the time. You have to make sure you're growing spiritually and producing good works, because that's how you really know if you were saved. You can believe Jesus all day long, but if you don't have the right works, then maybe it's just a false belief. See, that's the message of lordship salvation. How do you know if you're saved? By his works, you'll know him. Well, that's a distortion of that passage. If you look at that passage in, in, in the Gospels, it's talking about the Pharisees, by their works you shall know them. It's talking about what they teach. So the word works is a broad general term, and in that passage it's referring about, it's referring to their doctrine, to what they teach, that you're going to know a false teacher by their false teaching, not by their lifestyle. I mean, there are numerous false teachers out there that have moral, upright lifestyles. There's a number of cults out there that have very moral emphases in their doctrine. But that's not true. It's a false doctrine because of what is taught, what is believed, not because of what is done, necessarily. Okay, uh, Acts 13 describes prepared, what, how the gospel is presented to prepared Jews, prepared, positive Jews who are familiar with the Old Testament. There's quotations from Old Testament passages, indications that Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Now let's turn over to the next chapter and see how the gospel is prepared to or presented to unprepared Gentiles. This is what we'll run into a lot, unprepared Gentiles. Maybe they're Buddhist, maybe they're Hindus, maybe they're New Age, maybe they're Muslims, maybe they're just everyday, good old secular, agnostic uh, Americans. How do you present the gospel to an unprepared Gentile? We have two examples, Acts 14 and later Acts 17. These are unprepared Gentiles in Lystra. Interesting what happens here. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. And they have a healing. They heal this cripple. Verse 8, In Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. 
This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently, seeing that he had had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and he walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. See, they're attributing to Paul and Barnabas deity. These are gods that have done this. So immediately you've got a communication problem. They're not speaking in Greek either. They're speaking in their Lyconian language. They called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because Paul was the one who was doing all the talking, and that was the role of Hermes, the chief chief messenger or spokesman for the gods. Then, this must have been really a wild scene, the priest of Zeus whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. And when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, ran in among the multitudes, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you, Uangalizo, preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. What's going on here? Where's the cross? Think about it. Where's Jesus being raised from the dead here? See, he didn't even get to the cross here. He never even mentions Jesus at this point. He will. You can infer that from the text. But before he gets to Jesus, he has to make sure they understand who the God is that they're talking about. They understand God and gods. They're worshiping Zeus and and Hermes. They've got the Olympian uh, gods down. But they don't understand who the God is who sent Jesus. So the starting point is getting their theology proper straight. And then he is going, once he has them understand who God is, as the creator of the universe, then he can understand and communicate why the creature needs to be saved. He doesn't just jump into the cross. He starts with God as creator. Part of the response happens here is that uh, the Judaizers come in and stir up trouble in uh, verse 19, and, and Paul gets stoned in, in uh, Lystra. But eventually they go back, verse 21, when they preached the gospel to that city, that is after they left there and gone on to Derby, they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. And... Um, Then verse 23, so when they had appointed elders in every church, that is in each of these cities, so obviously there were enough positive uh, response in Lystra to establish a a local congregation. When they appointed elders, that is pastors, in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what was the response to the gospel message? Belief. Now we're not told between verse 15 and verse 21 that, that Paul communicated the information about Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. Obviously, he did because they were saved. But he didn't start there. He, he started with their understanding of God. My point is that when you witness to certain unprepared Gentiles, you don't start with some some common knowledge of who Jesus is and that men are sinners. You have to go back and start with who God is. Now, just a couple of more references, Acts 16, 
we see the preaching of the word. Now, in Acts 16, verse 10, we have the, Paul's overall mission stated. Now, after he had seen the vision, that is, when he was in Asia Minor in Turkey, uh, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. He had a vision of a man calling him to come over to Europe to Macedonia and preach the gospel, concluding that the Lord had called us to Uangalizo to preach the gospel to them. Now we have an example of how he does that. In Philippi, he is thrown into prison, and in Acts 16.30, after the gates had been opened and the, and the uh, guard of the prison, seeing that the doors are open, and the prisoners had fled is about to commit suicide. So that's his preparation. He's scared to death. He thinks he's going to die all of a sudden. Now, his preparation didn't have to do with with uh, getting facts straight about the Old Testament. His preparation is he knows he's going to die, and he wants to go to heaven. And so the response from, from Paul and Silas is given in verse 31. So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That is, you and your household. You and your household is applying the principle, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to him as an individual and the household. It's not talking about household faith that he could believe and all of his family would be saved. But the point that I want to emphasize is, once again, preaching the gospel is explained briefly and succinctly in verse 31, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What is the condition for for salvation? It is faith alone in Christ alone. And there's a situation when Paul uh, doesn't go through a lot of discourse in establishing a frame of reference. But we do have another example where he does that in, in chapter 17 when he goes to Athens. This is a passage we've looked at a lot. And he comes to uh, Mars Hill in Athens, and here he enters into a dialogue with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So this is a different kind of person. The Philippian jailer is probably an unlearned man who doesn't have a lot of intellectual baggage to bring his objections to whatever it is he's going to hear. So he's at one end of the socioeconomic spectrum. At the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, you have the philosopher leaders in Athens. And Paul comes to them, and we're told in verse 18, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he, uangelizo, he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. So here he is clearly explaining the resurrection along with uh, the gospel related to what Christ did. But when we see his detailed encounter with them in the next uh, next few verses, he begins not at the cross, but he begins with who God is. Verse 22, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation 
of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling. The point is that he gets to the gospel, but he has to spend time setting the stage that they have to understand who God is as the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Let's summarize. When we ask the question, what is the gospel? And we go back and we look through the various accounts in Acts. Now, they're not, none of those accounts are trying to define for us everything there is to say about the gospel. They are simply historical accounts relating what happened. But we can derive from that certain basic, basic conclusions. One is that the gospel had to do with the good news that, that there was forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. That the response, secondly, that the response was simply to believe in Jesus Christ. It didn't involve believe and be baptized, believe and commit your life, uh, believe and change your life, believe in uh, any of the other things that people want to associate with salvation. It was simply faith alone in Christ alone, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. But we also saw that the process of evangelism or witnessing is not a type of cookie-cutter event. It involves something different for each person. You have to decide uh, through interaction and communication with people how much they understand. What's their frame of reference? Do they know who, who God is? When you start saying God provided a Savior for your sins, who is God? Is this God some sort of impersonal force? Or is it the personal, holy, righteous God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? If they don't understand who God is, then when you communicate the gospel message that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that is going to lose a lot of its force and context because they don't understand the background. So you have to take some time to go back and teach them who God is before you can ever get to the point of of fully explaining the gospel. Some of that has to do with just where the individual is. The Philippian jailer, on one hand, is just a simple thinker and doesn't take a whole lot to convince him. Some folks are that way. On the other hand, you have some folks who, they, because of their background, education, training, they've just built up a whole wall of intellectual defense against the gospel, and you have to approach them in a different manner. So what that calls upon us to do as believers is to work on our preparation and the most important factor I find in witnessing is doing it. You're going to make mistakes. We've all made mistakes. You'd be amazed at some of the atrocious mistakes I've made in witnessing. But you learn by it, and fortunately we have God the Holy Spirit who sort of superintends the whole process, and he makes the gospel clear so that no one is going to be lost because of your mistakes. And ultimately they're not saved because of your our ability to articulate the gospel and answer all their questions. Your job and my job is just to make the gospel as clear as we can, and God the Holy Spirit's the one who drives it home and enables them to understand what the real issues are. Giving the gospel is the good news. It is the good news that salvation is simple. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. You don't have to do anything for it, but our sins are paid for. There's forgiveness of sins, and we can have an eternal relationship with God. Next time we'll come back and see the consequences of believing the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15:1, the second part of the verse and in 15:2 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning to once again be confronted with the simplicity of the gospel and as well as the simplicity of 
communicating the gospel. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do is believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of of remorse. It's not a matter of impressing God with how you're going to live your life. It's not a matter of participating in religious ritual. It is simply a matter of believing that Jesus died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins and that that is all that is necessary for salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.